Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hey, hey. And we are doing another forgotten feminist favorite. Always a good fallback. Yeah, it's always good. And sometimes I just, I'm itching to do another. They're like my favorites. I love learning about people that I don't know much about. Yeah, they're fun. It's like a good little history lesson. Yeah. You know? I love them. We hope you guys enjoy these. We really like them. We love them. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's my turn to go first I this week. I believe so, my dear. Um, mine won't be very long, but... Good, because I've got a lot of shit. Okay, great. Um, mine won't be very long, but I recently learned about this person kind of like in passing, and I like uh-huh. wrote it down and saved it for... Perfect. ...for this very moment right now. I am going to talk about America's first female mayor. Nice. Now... The story behind this is really what gets it. So, okay, um, I'm excited. Susanna Medora Salter was the first woman mayor in the United States. She was born Susanna Medora or Dora. She went by Dora quite a lot. Okay, Kinsey in Lamira. I don't know if I'm saying that right. In Belmont County, Ohio, on March second, eighteen sixty. So, is she the mayor of Ohio? She was not the mayor in Ohio, no. Okay. Um, she Her family ended up moving to Kansas. Got so it. a lot of this information I got from the Kansas Historical Society. Nice. Most Most of it. Okay. So her parents were Quakers, and her family first came to America from England with William Penn's colonists on a ship called Welcome. So they've been here a very long time. I just yeah. like that, that fact. They've been yeah. here forever. They yeah. came over with William Penn. She moved with her family from Ohio to Kansas, where she started going to school, and in 1878, she entered Kansas State Agricultural College as a sophomore, but she was six weeks out from graduating before she had to leave college because she came down with an illness, so she never actually finished college, but she probably got more schooling than a lot of uh, women at that time, especially in, like, kind of small communities, because she was living in a pretty small community at the time. Do you know what part of Kansas she was living? I'm not sure at this time because they ended up moving to a different part of Kansas. Okay, because I know Kansas a little bit, so I'm just curious. Yeah, um, let me know if you know where they end up. Okay. But, uh, so after leaving school, Susanna took a trip to Manhattan yep. where she met... I have family in Manhattan, Kansas. Oh, no, no, no. Manhattan, oh, Manhattan. New oh, York. There is a Manhattan, Kansas. That's hilarious. No, no, no. She took a trip to Manhattan, New York. Uh, the Manhattan. The Manhattan. The Manhattan. Yes. She wanted to, you know, experience that big city life. Of course. You got to go to New York. As a young lady. Yes. Um, yeah. I love it whenever, like, small cities are like, you know what? We're going to call ourselves Paris. Yeah. I'm like, Texas? <laughs> really? Like, come on. You're not Paris. You're not Paris. Stop no. doing that. So she went to Manhattan, New York, (laughs) where she met Louis Salter, and the two were married when Susanna was 20 and Louis was 22. So young, Young but... couple, young love. Yeah, but, you know, probably kind of, like, on the 
outer edge of like marrying time for I them. Was, I was going to the... say this is like the what the late 1800s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they probably most people were probably married by the age of like what 18, 17, yeah, 18. Yeah, absolutely. So she's 20, he's 22. They're, They're like, old maids. Get married already. Yes. Chop, chop, start having kids. <laughs> exactly. So the two had one child together. They didn't waste any time. They had a child together, like, pretty much right away in New York. Um, And then they decided to move to the town of Argonia in Sumner County, Kansas, in 1882. Argonia was a very small Quaker town of about, like, 500 people. And Lewis opened a hardware store there, and the couple welcomed their second child. I just love the idea of, like, a time when you could just move somewhere and be like, I'm going to open a store. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was, like, not complicated. Yeah. <laughs> you could well, just do that. Well, and also the fact that, like, is he, like, a New Yorker? I'm not sure where he came Cause from. Because that that's kind of an interesting thing to me because it's, like, she wanted to leave Kansas. She went to New York to have this, like, big city life. She met someone. They had a kid. And the idea of, like, taking yourself out of that world and going back to, like, a small community I think is really cute and yeah. sweet. I guess and what I want to do one day. I want to just, like, move to Sun Valley, Idaho and have this, like, sweet little life. Yeah. Home, you know? And I don't really know, like, what his religious affiliations were, but, you know, it's also possible that she wanted to move back into, a, like, a Quaker community. That makes sense, too. And, yeah. like, all of that as well when she was starting to have kids and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I could totally see that happening. Like, you know, even for myself when I've thought about having kids, I'm like, do I want to have kids in L.A.? Yeah. Or I, does something happen to you for a lot of people where they want to return to something quote-unquote simpler yeah. and smaller? Yeah. You know, when they start building a family. So they have their second child. I believe they have two daughters. Okay. And Susanna's parents, Oliver and Teresa, move from whatever city they were in in Kansas to Argonia later that year. And they purchase the hardware store from Lewis. They take over the operation and they change the name to Kinsey and Salter while Lewis is studying to become a lawyer. So he's studying to, like, take his bar exam. The town um, was incorporated in... 1885, and at that time, they... I think the reason why it's so easy to, like, move somewhere and be like, we're gonna just put up a hardware store yeah. uh, is because it wasn't incorporated yet, I don't yeah. think, like, into the union, I'm guessing. Correct me if I'm wrong, if this sounds stupid. I know nothing um, about it, But so. that, that's what I'm assuming they mean by incorporated is incorporated into the union. So at this point, they needed to have, like, a mayor, a sheriff, like, all of those things. Yeah. So um, Susanna's father... Oliver actually became the first official mayor of Argonia, with her husband acting as the city clerk at that time. In this capacity, her husband wrote ordinances for the town. Two years later, the Kansas legislature enacted a law giving the franchise to women in first, second, and third-class cities— don't know what that means, Mm -mm. but Argonia was considered to be a third-class city, and the women there were then eligible to vote at that time. Nice. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the white women were eligible to vote, but, but for sure. So Susanna, like many other women's rights activists at the time, she she was a um, temperance advocate. Got it. So she believed in the prohibition, like prohibition movement and all of that stuff as early as like the late 1800s, which was very common, like when we talk yeah. about first wave feminists. 
Um, so the Women's Christian Temperance Union had been organized in Argonia in 1883, and with the right to vote, its members called a caucus and selected a ticket of men whom they considered to be worthy of the town's offices, regardless of political labels. In the absence of their president, Mrs. Salter presided at this caucus. So they basically got together, a bunch of these women who were temperance advocates, they got together and they put together an official WCT you ticket like this is our endorsed ticket of of men who we think are worthy to hold office in this in this um city okay now there were a lot of men in the town who resented not only the fact that women had the right to vote but also that they were being active in politics in any capacity yeah that they created this list right yeah you know these men considered politics to be men's domain completely so they were pissed that these women were getting together and having these like Political discussions. Yes, absolutely. So they attended the WCTU caucus, and they basically, like, heckled the women the entire time and tried to, like, intimidate them the entire time, and they also tried to nominate their own candidate to put on the ticket, and they were voted down. All the women were like, absolutely fucking not. Yeah. Not today. So these men, these, like, bitter, little, small, toxic men, formed their own secret caucus, <laughs> and they met secretly in the back of a restaurant, and they hatched a plan to get back at these women oh, and, like, so teach petty. them a lesson. It so is So petty. Top pettiness. <laughs> um, King petty. So they drew up a slate to replace the ticket that the WTCU had created, and it was identical to the WTCU's ticket, except for that they replaced their pick for mayor with the person who was acting as president, Susanna Salter. Wait, so the men chose Susanna Salter? Yes, because... Because they were like, this'll get him. Yes, so they replaced the ticket, um, put Susanna Salter... Their logic was that no man would vote for a woman as mayor, and that the only votes she would get would be that from the feminists. And this will humiliate her. Absolutely. It's going to humiliate her. It's going to humiliate the WTCU. It's going to humiliate them. Yes, because they were like, only feminists are going to vote for them and other women's rights activists and they're going to lose in a landslide. They're going to be a laughing stock, basically. So, on April 4th, 1887, it was the day of the election. Yeah. And was she, like, down with it? She's like, yeah, I'll be mayor. Well, she didn't know. Like, oh, nobody that's knew right. because it they, was a secret. Yeah, they secretly replaced this ticket. That's right. So it's the day of the election. The Republican Party, remember the time, you guys, yes. the Republican and Democratic Party's ideas or ideologies were swapped at exactly. this time. So um, the Republican Party realized that Susanna's name had been replaced on the ballot, and instead of balking at the idea, they approached Susanna and explained the situation to her and she they said that they approached her while she was like doing the family's washing she was like hanging up their clothes and they were like hey like this is the thing that happened and um she was like sure i'll become mayor if i win this election love it i'll do it easy as that yeah sure so with that um and when she agreed the members of the party who were speaking to her they said all right we will elect you and just show those fellows who uh, who framed this up a thing or two. I love it so yeah. much. It's a great story. It's fantastic. So all day long, because remember, it's the day of the, the election. Day. So, and she's like, I just found out this morning. Let's time get to this campaign. done. Exactly. Time to campaign. I've got five hours to campaign. Let's get on it. We I just this. love that it's pettiness on like every side. Like even, <laughs> exactly. even the Republican Party was like, we're going to show them. Yeah. Listen. Um, <laughs> this would be a great 
drunk history episode. Oh, totally. This would be a great yes. drunk history episode. If it's not episode. one already, it would be fantastic. So all day long, Susanna, the WCTU, and the Republican Party worked together to do last-minute campaigning, and at 4 p.m., when the polls closed, Susanna, who was 27 at the time, had won. She didn't even win by a small margin. My age? Yeah. She, I could be mad. She was 27. <laughs> she won, and she won by a two-thirds majority. So How? she won most of the vote. Yeah. Actually. So she immediately... How? Be- I, a, a progressive town, I guess. Yeah, because, like, she had mere hours to get mere this hours, together. Mere hours, yes. And, like, also, I guess it also depends on who else was on, because I wondered if you voted for full tickets, possibly. Right. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So uh, Mrs. Salter immediately became one of the most talked about and written about political figures in America. Newspapers sent correspondents to Argonia to visit her council meetings and see how she conducted the town's business. So, of course, this was, like, a, like, huge media sensation, and people were waiting for her to fail, essentially. Yeah. Like, yeah. they were like, How? we've never had a wom- woman... I was going to ha- say, it doesn't sound like it's, like, waiting for her to succeed. No, yeah, yeah. because they'd never really had a woman, like, hold this kind of political office before. Right. And along that vein, I think Susanna Salter also knew that, like, she was going to have a lot of eyes on her, and she Big couldn't fail. You yeah. know what I mean? So, newspapers debated over the advisability of other towns electing women mayors. mayors. Many objected to the possible petticoat rule, while others took a wait-and-see attitude. Those who deferred judgment felt that if her term of office were a success, women in politics might not be such a world-shaking change in American political life after all. Other newspapers made the mayor the object of many editorial jokes and sly remarks. Of course. It's like today's, like, late show. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, jokes. Like, ridiculed. I'm sure she was in a lot of political cartoons and things like that. Um, The Leavenworth Times, quoting the Sun article, pointed out that the correspondent expressed... So, a correspondent from the Sun, like, went and watched one of her um, meetings. And he expressed the opinion that she made, quote, an intelligent, capable, and conscientious officer fully equal to all the requirements of her position. The Times went on to vent Mrs. Salter when it stated that this evidence is corroborated by every individual who has had the opportunity to base his judgment on a personal observation of her conduct in this administration. Another paper wrote, she is having a successful uh, administration. When she was elected to her present office, her enemies predicted that she would make a failure of her effort to run the municipal affairs of Argonia. Up to the present time, she has made no great blunders. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, we're not going to give her anything, but, like, she hasn't fucked up. Yeah, so, So, I mean, there were tons of newspaper articles. The Manhattan Nationalist remarked that it was fortunate for those who favored women's suffrage to be first represented in official life by one like Mrs. Salter. There are many others in Kansas just as capable as she, but as among men, there are some incapable. It cannot be said now that the very beginning of women in office was a failure. So she was very... They're still waiting for a failure, is what that sounds like to me. To me, what I think he's trying to say is... Had she come out and been the first woman to hold an office and be bad at it, it would have given ammunition for anti-feminists or chauvinists or misogynists to say, women are bad at politics, look. Right. But she didn't do that. So now nobody can say that the start of women in politics was a failure because she didn't fail. Nice. Um, So Susanna was determined, you know... 
it's kind of an interesting conversation to talk about her because, like, as a feminist and as, like, a forgotten feminist favorite, because in a lot of ways, she really didn't rock the boat, and she really didn't rock the boat on purpose. Yeah. Because she didn't... But that was, like, very intentional, I think. It it was intentional, because she didn't want to give anti-feminists anything to be able to lash back on her. Um, And... In some ways, that feels very adverse to a lot of the feminists that we talk about who very deliberately, like, rallied against the system and, like, broke shit down. But I think she was very... But I think she did break shit down by playing the game. She did, yeah. I think she was very aware that she needed to play ball as the first woman in, you know, in this kind of position in order to open the door for other women. And Uh it's, like, it's not ideal, but it's also, like... I I think it's... I wouldn't... Yeah. I don't look at it that way at all. I think that the way she played it was very strategic and important because then she was opening the door for other women in the future and even herself in the future to then kind of break down more walls, be more vocal, things like that. But I think she played it very smart. Totally, yeah. So she intentionally had kind of an uneventful term. Like, she didn't do a whole lot to push any, like, seriously radical issues. But her being there, I feel like, was incredibly radical. Right, and she did continue her work with the Temperance temperance Movement and the WTCU, and she did continue to, like... She was very aware that, like, that's in large part why she was elected. So she did continue her work with those organizations and didn't back down from those things. Right. After her term as mayor, Susanna chose not to run again. She went back to the private life. In 1893, Susanna and her family left Kansas and eventually settled in Norman, Oklahoma. On November 10th, 1933, Mrs. Salter was honored by the citizens of Argonia with a great deal of ceremony. A bronze plaque mounted on a stone base was unveiled on the public square. The plaque was donated by the Women's Kansas Day Club. The words read, In honor of Miss Susanna Medora Salter, first woman mayor in the United States, she served as mayor of Argonia, Kansas, 1887, marker placed by Women's Kansas Day Club, 1933. When Susanna turned 90, she still greatly valued her independence and pledged to walk a mile on her birthday every year for the remainder of her life. She died on March 17th, 1961, just two weeks after wow. her 101st birthday. She, I just, I love to, like, Google who you're talking about so I can see them. And mm-hmm. she is the cutest old lady I've I know. ever seen She's in my life. Super cute as Grandma. an old lady. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, she lived to be 101. She died wow. two weeks after her 101st birthday in Norman, Oklahoma. Oh and she was, her body was taken back to Argonia where she was buried alongside her husband. That's fantastic. <laughs> and I wrote the end. My last paragraph that I wrote was, and that's the story of how fragile masculinity backfired in the most spectacular way. Instead of humiliating the women's rights advocates of their community, these men were responsible for the election of America's first female mayor. Yes! <laughs> I think that that's so funny. What it's a like, fantastic story. Fragile masculinity got the first female mayor, like, <laughs> elected. It's so insane. But I'm Yeah. I love it. I love... That was... A fantastic story. I'm so Thank glad you. I know who she is. She's so cute, <laughs> and I now love her so much. So I'm going to talk about somebody who I've seen her portrait a lot of times when I've been looking for forgotten feminist favorites and things like that. And I read like a little excerpt underneath her portrait, and I was like, you know, I kind of want to know more about this woman. And it turned into literally about 
five days of obsessive research and about 16 pages of notes that I had to condense. <laughs> so you can say I got a little obsessed with Miss Mary Wollstonecraft. And I'm going to call her Mary because I cannot say Wollstonecraft you had some for this entire episode. Yes. So... Mary Wollstonecraft is an English writer, philosopher, and feminist. She is known as one of the founding feminist philosophers, and feminists often cite both her life and her writings as important influences. She was born April 27, 1759, and in Spitalfields, London. Spitalfields, London. So she was the second of seven children from Elizabeth Dixon and John Wollstonecraft. When Mary was a child, they lived a very comfortable life financially, but once John got into some shady business investments regarding farming, the family started to lose money Sir. fast. Sir. He, John Wollstonecraft is, is problematic. So, Uh-oh. Yeah, so because of this, they were forced to move often. Mary was even forced to give up her inheritance that she would receive at 18 to her father. So her dad's like, Mary, we're really struggling here. I'm going to take your inheritance. Listen, like, Victorian fathers were shady as shit. If yes. I've learned anything from, like, HBO... Big ego, like... Yeah, yeah time, you know, time pieces, period pieces. Yeah. That's what I've learned. Yes, exactly. Well, he was also a drunk, and he would get incredibly violent with Mary's mother to the point where Mary would actually, like, lay in front of her mother's bedroom door at night to protect her from her father. It doesn't sound like he was violent toward his children, but very violent toward his wife. And Mary was very, very headstrong. It was like, well, then I'm just going to sleep at the foot of my mom's door and make sure that nothing can happen to her. Sounds like a charming man. So charming. Like, just a winner on all, all accounts. So she was also a very maternal figure for her younger sisters, Everina and Eliza. Although she was often a bit misguided, she convinced Eliza, who was probably struggling from postpartum depression, to leave her husband and child, which left her socially exiled, and Eliza could never remarry. So she's like, Ooh. oh, you're unhappy? Just leave your husband and child. You're fine. Some then, questionable judgment. Uh, yes. So she, and she's, you know, she's a very interesting woman. I'll just say that. You will know more. So she had two very important female friendships in her life. One of them was Jane Arden. The girls enjoyed reading together, and they would attend phil philosophical and scientific lectures from um, Jane's father. And Mary was a bit emotionally possessive of Jane. She once wrote to her, I have formed romantic notions of friendship. I am a singular in, I am a little singular in my thoughts of love and friendship. I must have first place or none. So she's like, it's, it sounds like a 1700s MySpace top eight situation. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, honestly, I'd be like, you're coming on a little strong. Yes. Well, she moves on from that friendship. And she moves on to this woman named Fanny Blood, which I feel like I've heard that name before. But I don't what an know unfortunate from, name. I know. There's a lot of Bloods back in, like, the 1700s, but, 1600s. Okay, but if your last name is Blood, maybe your first name should not be Fanny. <laughs> Fanny Blood. <laughs> I never even thought of it. That's not good. There's Well, and it's funny because they're in England, and Fanny is vagina, so it's, like, oh, bloody vagina. Jesus. Like, <laughs> what? It, why? <laughs> That's hilarious. I never even thought of it that way. So Mary credits Fanny for, like, opening her mind. At age 19, Mary left her parents' home to be a lady's companion for a widow named Sarah Dawson in Bath. I would low-key, high-key love to be, like, a lady's companion. Well, she if fucking I lived hated it. during this time period. <laughs> oh, just like, I just want to hang out. I'll hang out with an old lady. I mean, you can do that job now if you want. I guess that's true. That's, like, it's still a thing. You can, like, basically babysit for old people. Yeah. 
Yeah, it doesn't sound as fun, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Mary and Dawson did not get along. And when Mary's mother got sick, she was like, okay, I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to take care of my sick mother, which she would have done anyways. But she's like, I really don't like this woman. Um, After her mother's passing, she moved in with Fanny and her family. While living with Fanny, she was disappointed to find that her friend had very traditional feminine ideas that differed from hers, but the two remained very close and dedicated to each other. See, Mary had dreamed of this, like, living this, like, female utopia with Fanny. They had talked about, like, renting an apartment together and supporting each other emotionally and financially and kind of living in this, like, utopia world of, like, women, basically. Do we know if she's... Yeah, what, do gay. you know what her sexuality is? I looked it up, and there's people who speculate that she did have romantic feelings for some of these women, but I, I think it's more of a um, yearning for female companionship rather than actual, like, sexual desire. Okay. Because um, she does seem very interested in men. Okay, okay. So I think it's more of an attachment thing. And more yeah, I mean, like, and we've had this conversation before. Like, when we did our live show, um, we did discuss female friendships in the ways that people can become, like, very possessive. Yeah. Um, and I, I totally understand that, like, the way that female friendships are have been romanticized yeah. in a lot of ways. as I've read this, that was a big question of mine, and so I did Google it, and I couldn't really find anything that substantiated that. Um, and then as I read more, it doesn't seem like she was wanting Fanny to, like, be her sexual partner, but she very well could have been, and that's just not something that we know about. So I think that's kind of, like, something that people don't really know hmm. Interesting. about. Exactly. So so Fanny, Mary, and Mary's sister set up a school together, but Fanny soon got married and moved to Portugal. Bye, Fanny. <laughs> but when Fanny got pregnant, she was very ill. So I guess she was typically a woman who got sick very easily. So when she got pregnant, she got really sick. And Mary went to Portugal to nurse her friend back to health, but Fanny eventually passed away after giving birth. And this would be Mary's inspiration for writing Mary a Fiction. When Mary went back to the school, the school had failed because both Fanny and Mary were gone. The, the other sister, sister was like, I can't hold this shit down. <laughs> I can't do it. Like, you guys need to get back here. Yeah. So then Mary became the governess for the Kingsborough family, taking care of the two daughters and educating them. And working with these girls inspired the children's book, Original Stories from a Real Life. And these girls loved her. The family was kind of like, she's a little out there. Like, she might be filling your mind with some questionable, like, ideals of being young women. But, you know, you love her. She's a good teacher. And we she's don't want to take care of you so yeah so we're we're cool it's fine (laughs) but she mary just didn't really feel fulfilled with any of these career options for women she didn't like being a governess she didn't like being you know a lady's keeper or whatever you want to call it and she was really frustrated that this was kind of a single woman's only options for careers so she decided to become an author which was a career choice unheard of for a woman at the time and she told her sister that she would be quote the first of a new genius oh okay very sure of herself apparently yes she then moved to london to assist a publisher named joseph johnson she found her own place to live and she learned to support herself when working for johnson she would write reviews and translate text she also kind of worked as his assistant and she was invited to a lot of these like parties and things like that that joseph johnson would host and this really expanded her intellectual universe and she got to know a lot of other authors and philosophers people that um, really spoke to the things that she was passionate about while in london mary started a relationship with henry fuseli uh but he was married she She's just a very ballsy woman, so she even proposed a platonic living situation with Fuseli and his wife, but obviously the wife was not cool with this, so the relationship ended. She's like, hey, 
I'm, like, totally in love with your husband, but, like, I don't need to, like, sleep with him. Can we just, like, live together and have That's this be... That's very like, weird. Yeah, and the wife is like, no. <laughs> so Mary then was hurt and humiliated, so she's like, I'm going to France. And she wanted to be part of the French Revolution. She wrote Vindication of the Rights of Men, which attacked aristocracy, aristocracy, and advocated for the Republic. This was a response to Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, which defended constitutional monarchy, aristocracy, and the Church of England. She was then inspired to write A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792, and that is the work that she is most known for. This spoke on the importance of education in women. She writes that women are essential to the nation because they educate its children, so that women, and also so that women could be companions to their husbands rather than just mere wives. These women need education to be able to have a real standing in society. She emphasizes the importance of viewing women as more than ornaments of society or property to be traded through marriage, but as human beings who deserve the same fundamental rights as men. Amen. Mind blowing, right? Yeah. Seventeen. What was it? Seventeen forty something. Yeah. Holy Way shit. ahead of her time. She states that society breeds gentle domestic brutes and that a confined existence makes women frustrated and turns them into tyrants over their children and servants. Doesn't it, though? It does. <laughs> like, like, if we know anything about, like, <laughs> yeah. the way that, like, women repressed rage yeah. that women had back yeah. in the day. Yeah, not, not pleasant. So living in France as a British woman was not easy. It was actually very dangerous as England was at war with France. Foreigners were surveilled by police, had to get residency permits and had to produce six written statements from Frenchmen vouching for their loyalty. And eventually foreigners were forbidden to leave France. It was a very dangerous time uh, to be a Big foreigner. yikes. Yeah. yeah. Very big yikes. Many of Mary's friends were imprisoned and beheaded as the Jacobsons set out to kill their enemies. So the Jacobsons were a political club who were known for their reign of terror during their popularity in France. They executed over 10,000 people for political crimes in France, and Mary was often under suspicion. Mary was angered by how the Jacobsons treated women as they were given no rights and referred to them as Amazons. Mary then fell in love with Gilbert Imlay, an American adventurer. She decided to put her ideas on the rights of women to practice by sleeping with Imlay out of wedlock. She okay. was like, I'm going to try out some of these ideas of mine that women should be, you know, freer and all that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, Imlay was really not interested in marriage at all. But during this time, Mary realized that she really liked sex. <laughs> Good for you, Mary. I feel you. Because of the Jacobson's suspicions of Mary, Imlay decided, uh, saved Mary by creating false statements of marriage to the U.S. Embassy in Paris, which made Mary an American citizen on paper. So they never got married, but he basically falsified these papers, being like, this is my wife. She went by Mary Imlay. I feel like it stuff. wouldn't have been hard to falsify papers back then. No, I don't think it would have at all. On May 14th, 1794, Imlay and Mary had their first child, and they named her Fanny. Oh, Yeah. I mean, cute, but also, stop naming your kids Fanny. <laughs> I just feel like it's not a good name. <laughs> Sorry to any fannies who might be listening, but I feel like Fanny is probably a pretty outdated. Right? I feel by now. like most people don't name their kids that yes, anymore. But she was so dedicated to her pal. I mean, I get it, but so, now as a mother, Mary continued to write. Yet Emily was still dissatisfied with this new domestic-minded Mary. So he was like, "I'm gonna leave." Like he didn't really leave the relationship. He's like, "I'm gonna." He's an American adventurer. He's like, "I'm gonna go." Adventure and shit. I love it when people just deuce out on They're, their kids. Yeah. They're like, bye. Bye. While nursing Fanny, she wrote an historical and moral view of the origin and progress of the French Revolution. All of her titles are fucking long. 
He promised to return to Mary and Fanny, but his delays in writing and long absences led Mary to think that he found another woman. Mary was now an abandoned foreign woman right in the middle of a revolution with an infant child. Um, all what while a watching dick. her friends being imprisoned and executed. But like, she but she was technically married to an American on paper. So she was somewhat safe, but she was so isolated. Like yeah, but what she, a fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, she's like, I'm horrified that something is gonna happen and I'm gonna be imprisoned and killed. All my friends are dying. I'm lonely. I have this in like this was right after their child was born. Yeah. Like he's a piece of shit. Right away. Oh, he's a total asshole. So the year before, in 1793, the British government had begun a crackdown on radicals, suspending civil liberties, imposing drastic censorship, and trying to get, uh, trying for treason of anyone suspected of sympathizing with the revolution. So Mary was, you know, <laughs> in like, trouble. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, I have my name attached to a lot of this shit. Oh, fuck. The winter of 1794 was so harsh in France that Mary had to leave and she went back to London come spring. She also went because she um, went kind of looking for Imlay and she continued to call herself Mrs. Imlay to maintain legitimacy of their child, to keep their child safe. So she went to London. She's like, I'm going to find my man. Everything's going to be fine. She still hadn't won back Imlay in May of 1795, and she attempted suicide via laudanum, which is an opioid. Right. But Imlay saved her. What? When did he get back? She went to him. She oh, found so she him. She found in him. Yes, and she's like trying to win him back, and he's like not going for it. So she she attempts suicide. She continues to try to get Emily back, even trying to help with his business ventures. So she went to Scandinavia with her one year old daughter and their maid, where she wrote a personal book about her travels called "Letters Written During a Short Residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark." Wow. Very long titles. She then returned to London, so she was like, her husband's an adventurer. She went out. She explored all of these things. She lived in these places. She wrote this beautiful pamphlet, and still wasn't enough for her husband. Um, and it was very clear at this time that the relationship was over. And so she attempted suicide a second time, leaving a note to her lost love saying... Let my wrongs sleep with me. Soon, very soon, I shall be at peace. When you receive this, my burning head will be cold. I should plunge into the Thames, where there is at least a chance of, my, of me being snatched by the death I seek. God bless you. May you never know by experience what you, what you have made me endure. Should your sensibility ever awake, remorse will find its way to your heart. And in the midst of business and sensual pleasures, I shall appear before you, the victim of your deviation and rectitude. Talk about she the most petty. Hot his Ass. That is the most petty suicide letter I have ever heard <laughs> in my fucking she's life. She's like, you fucking asshole, I'm gonna haunt your ass for the rest of I your life. I love that she said, God bless you. Like, that's like a, that's like a bless her heart. That Do you is, know what I mean? Where I'm just like, totally wow. Is. So she, that is so petty. She did jump in the river and a stranger saved her. And she was like, what the fuck does a girl have to do to die? But she actually found her suicide attempts incredibly rational, writing, I have only one lament that when the bitterness of death was passed, I was inhumanely brought back to life in misery. But a fixed determination is not to be baffled by disappointment, nor will I allow that to be a frantic attempt, which is one of the calmest acts of reason. In this respect, I am only accountable to myself. Did I care for what is termed reputation? It is by other circumstances that I should be dishonored. So she's like, this is not going to tarnish my reputation. This was something that I had a calm mind about. It was a decision that I made. You motherfuckers won't let me die. I mean, I... 
I, I have to say that her letter didn't seem particularly calm. No. Like, but she's I mean, claiming, she's like, hey, I have the right to my life. I have the right I, to my death. And whatever. I agree. I, yeah. I actually fully agree that people have, you know, rights to their lives in that yeah. way. But, like, I'm also like, that letter did not seem rational. It no. did not seem like you were like, no. I've Mary, thought about it, and this is the best option. <laughs> like, I think Mary's idea of rational is different than most people's ideas of rational. I think she was a very passionate person, a very possessive person, a person who like did everything very fully. So I think to her that seemed very rational, but also like you have an infant child and like, let's, right. be, let's be a little more society's version of, version of rational. Well, I also please. think, yeah, she doesn't seem to have a lot of forethought or think ahead very no, much. No, she's very spur of the she's moment. impulsive. She is very yeah. impulsive. You know, I'll give it to her. Eventually, she returned to writing, reconnecting with Joseph Johnson's circle, and she met a man named William Goodwin, a journalist, philosopher, and novelist. Goodwin soon fell in love with Mary through her writings, saying of letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. <laughs> I can't. Every time I read her titles, I'm like, but. It's like a Panic at the Disco song title. <laughs> it really is. It is. So he, he like, fell in love with her writing through this, and he says, If ever there was a book calculated to make a man fall in love with its author, this appears to me to be the book. He refers to her as, quote, genius which commands all our adoration. Mary became pregnant with Goodwin, and Mary decided that they would get married to make this child legitimate. This made it known that Fanny was, in fact, illegitimate and that Mary had never married Imlay, which caused the couple to lose a lot of friends. Also, Goodwin was also kind of seen as, like, a hypocrite for writing about his disbelief of marriage in his book, Political Justice. So their friends are like... You don't believe in what you said you believed in. And and also, also you have a legitimate child. You weren't legitimately married. Big deal at the time. So Goodwin and Mary did, did marry... On March 29, 1797, and moved to Summerstown, where they lived in separate apartments near each other to remain their independence. They were very independent people. They would often correspond by letter, but on all accounts, their marriage was incredibly happy. They were very supportive. Yeah, I'm not mad at it. No, I think it's like if that's the way that you are best going to live your life... Yeah, fine. Go for it. On August 30th, 1797, Mary's second daughter, also named Mary, was born. There's a lot of Marys in this story. It tends to get confusing. There's a lot of Marys in this time period. Yeah. So I feel like there are certain names that we need to retire. Yes. So Mary Wollstonecraft is Mary. I'm going to call her daughter Little Mary. It's okay. It's just going to help a lot of things. <clears throat> the delivery of Little Mary seemed successful at first, but then her placenta broke apart and an infection formed, and she ended up dying of sepsis on September 10th, 1797, only 11 days after the birth of her child. Goodwin was completely devastated. He wrote to a friend saying, I firmly believe there does not exist her equal in the world. I know from experience we were formed to make each other happy. I have not the least expectation that I can now ever know happiness again. She was buried at Old St. Pancras Churchyard. I don't know, where her tombstone reads, Mary Wollstonecraft Goodwin, author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women. In January 1798, Goodwin published his memoirs of the author of The Vindication of the Rights of Women. Many were shocked that he revealed so much about his dead wife, including her illegitimate child, love affairs, and suicide attempts. Poet Robert Southey accused him of, quote, the want of feeling in stripping his dead wife naked. In reality, Goodwin's memoirs portrayed Mary as a woman who felt things deeply. 
The poem Wollstonecraft and Fuseli in the 19th century poem by Robert Browning and William Roscoe includes the lines, Hard was the fate in all scenes of life as a daughter, mother, friend, and wife, but harder still thy fate in death we own, thus mourned by Goodwin with a heart of stone. So they, people were not a fan of how he honored his wife, but now that book is seen as being almost like a love story in a way of honoring well, it's who his tr- wife it's really truthful. was. Like, yeah. I, I think it's you do the people in your life a disservice whenever you lie about like who they were, right? But and I you don't do history think that was... a, a disservice, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that that was the way it was viewed at the time. But yeah. like with perspective, like how much of what we know about historical figures is incorrect because people went and altered what their lives were like. Yeah, and they wanted they wanted to honor their death in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. So after Mary's death, Goodwin continued to care for Fanny and little Mary. He loved them very much. He even, like, he traveled to Ireland at one time, and he they stayed with a friend of his, and he wrote, I didn't write it because I was worried this was going to get too long, but there's a beautiful letter about how, like, the love for his children grows as he's away, and, like, give them all the kisses, give them the love, No, I'm thinking of them every second I'm here. Like, very, very sweet, especially because, like, Well, fathers Fanny, didn't show that kind of emotion no, either to and their Fanny children. wasn't his child. Yeah. You know, this was another man's child that he really saw as his own. He's all, very progressive. Very progressive. But he, all, he did favor Mary over, little Mary, over Fanny. Um, Goodwin once described Fanny as unshowy and by no means handsome. So there's that. Well, I mean. <laughs> so Goodwin went on to marry somebody else, also named Mary. <laughs> My God. I know that's what I'm saying. Fanny and little Mary were not fond of new Mary. <laughs> she brought along with her two children, uh, and she obviously favored the two children. That oh, evil were stepmother. Her Just own. classic evil totally. stepmother trope. Little Mary really didn't like this new stepmother, Mary. She wrote to her friend, As to Mrs. Goodwin, something very innocuous to di- disgust arises whenever I mention her, a woman I shudder to think of. Goodwin adored his first wife for the rest of his life. A por- her portrait, her like very famous portrait by John Opie, hung in his study for the rest of his life. The Goodwins were also good friends with Aaron Burr after his exile from the United States. He admired Mary Wollstonecraft's writing and educated his daughter according to a vindication. Oh, Theodosia. Yeah, I was going to add that, but I was like, it's too on the nose for me. (laughs) He referred to Fanny and Little Mary as goddesses and would discuss politics and educational topics with Fanny. And he was like a really, he very much admired this family, very much regarded them as being like equals to society and mm-hmm. I think that was really great that's one thing about Aaron Burr that I don't think a lot of people know is that he had a very feminist um, perspective yeah with a I actually lot of think things. Aaron Burr was a pretty good person he like, was he from... was just there was certain things with like there was something with like the water in in like some area that he could have fixed and he didn't there's some I don't know well I mean all those people are complicated like yeah. I don't think that I mean, Aaron I don't think Aaron Burr is a villain no. and Alexander Hamilton is a hero no. I think like they both are very complicated. Yeah. Over time, Goodwin grew hostile towards Fanny. Her lover, uh, Fanny's lover, had fallen in love with her sister, and they ended up getting married. So Fanny was in love with this dude. Right. And then dude fell in love with her little sister, Mary, and they got married. So Fanny was, like, very heartbroken and distressed. And she actually took her own life on October 9th, 1816, at 22 years old, in the same fashion as her mother's first suicide attempt, by overdosing on laudanum. Little Mary, now Mary Shelley, went on to write... Frankenstein! Frankenstein! 
1851, Mary's remains were moved by her grandson to St. Peter's Church in Bournemouth, Bournemouth to the family tomb. William Goodwin was buried with her after his death in 1836, as was his second wife, who died in 1841. So it's still... Mr. Goodwin and his two Marys buried together <laughs> forever. I don't think I'd like that. I wouldn't either, but I think he I think he always remained very loyal to Mary Wollstonecraft. And when he got remarried, I think he had a love for this woman, but it's pretty obvious that like She always came second. She came second. And I believe it made sense for those two to bury together because they were married at the time of their deaths. But I think that it was important for him to have the love of his life be near him. Yeah, as well. I mean and I think also like very often marriage back then was not about, like, love, you know? Yeah. So I'm sure that his second marriage it wasn't necessarily because, like, they loved each other. You know, yeah. there were probably other factors to consider. I think it was, like, a mother for his children. Right, and she know? needed a pair. I'm sure she was probably a widow since she already had children. Exactly. You know? I think it made a lot of sense. And I'm sure, you know, there there must have been some happiness and some Maybe. love of one another. We don't know. But I think he was always incredibly devoted to... Miss Wollstonecraft yeah. held that beautiful portrait with him forever. I didn't realize that was Mary Shelley's mother. Yeah. yeah. Crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of, I actually was reading about the two of them and I was, I knew nothing about, I mean, I don't know much about Mary Shelley, but Mary I really Shelley's knew life is fascinating. Yeah. Like it her, is. her life is fascinating and the way that like Frankenstein came to be is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, what I read is that like she kind of came up with like the idea of Frankenstein when she was on a trip to Germany and they were telling like ghost stories and she yeah. didn't have a story and they were like, well, just tell a story. And, and there so were a she, lot of famous writers there at that time. Yeah. yeah. And she just kind of came up with this like dead person who comes back to life. I guess she had lost a child, and it, some people think it was this tie to wishing that her child would have survived, or there was a way to bring her child back into Frankenstein her life. is a great book. It's if you've never great. read it, yeah, it's fantastic. So, it's so good. I haven't read the whole thing. I've just read, like, I remember reading excerpts of it in school and things like that. But I thought that could also be an interesting thing for me to talk about another time, kind yeah. of having that story continue. I find Fanny Wollstonecraft, or Fanny Imlay, I mean, life very fascinating, um, tragic, I just love, I loved this whole story so much. I loved including her, like, her husbands and lovers and, like, their stories as well. I just found her whole story to be so fascinating Mm -hmm. and how the idea of who she was has changed so much over time. Like, she was kind of forgotten through a lot of, like, the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, a lot of her writing became popular. A lot of, like first-wave, second-wave feminists started attaching themselves to her writings, and a lot of her ideals are what we know of as feminism today. Yeah, that's awesome. Very fascinating. Well, very good. Yeah, thank you. I had so much fun. So if you guys have any ideas of people that you would like to hear us talk about, because we can always use more ideas. Absolutely. If you want to send in sister solidarity stories, if you want to send us episode suggestions, if you want to say, hey, what's up, email us at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminists. You can also direct message us there. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yanf Podcast. Y A N F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and chat with your fellow ragers on the group page, or you can rate and review us on the business page. Give us a like, tell your friends about us, helps us out a lot. We would really, really appreciate more reviews on Apple Podcasts. That would mean so, so, so much to us. And if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a little bit. That's all we have for today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye-bye.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.